Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Hey everybody, this episode of Other People is sponsored by Other Voices Queretaro. I think that's how you pronounce it, Queretaro, Q-U-E-R-E-T-A-R-O. It's a city in Mexico and Other Voices Queretaro is a vibrant, multifaceted writing program set, you guessed it, in Queretaro, Mexico. It focuses on both fiction and creative nonfiction, as well as the ins and outs of contemporary publishing. The program was co-launched by Gina Frangello and Stacey Beerline, long-standing business partners editing Other Voices magazine and Other Voices books, which is now an imprint of Dezank Books. So if you're looking for a great writing retreat, a great summer writing program, look no further. Other Voices Queretaro is happening this summer, July 5th through July 14th, 2013. It will offer three morning workshops to choose from, led by authors Pam Houston, Rob Roberge, and Joseph Novakovich. And there will be an evening wine and publishing section for the entire group. There will also be two group excursions. For more details, please visit OtherVoicesQuerétaro.com. It's a writing program in Mexico. Go and participate in it. Dios mío. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jeez, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right, right. Okay, you guys, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is what you downloaded. This is what you are consuming. Thank you for being here. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. I am back from Chicago. Uh, as many of you know, I was at my little sister's wedding this past weekend uh, out there in the Windy City. And for those of you who are regular listeners, I feel compelled to share that I was able to exercise some self-control uh, throughout the festivities. Uh, I believe it was in episode 168, the Scott Nadelson episode in that particular monologue. 
uh, where I was talking about the pressure that I was feeling to get spectacularly intoxicated at my sister's wedding as a matter of uh, obligation. (laughs) I was musing on the absurdity of that. How for some reason I felt obligated to uh, poison myself to the point of illness as a way of celebrating my sister's nuptials. Uh, but as it turns out, it, it truly was absurd, this, this worry of mine. Nobody noticed anything about my intake. Uh, nobody cared. Nobody was monitoring my blood alcohol content. And I only wound up having three or four drinks at the wedding over the course of the evening, over the course of several hours. And I stayed until the end. I was there. I was having fun. I was also chasing my daughter around, uh, but I paced myself is the point. I drank club soda, the band played until one, and I was there for my sister. I even danced. I tried to dance. Uh, And I should also add that I took a five-hour energy. (laughs) Uh, You know what I'm talking about? They sell them at gas stations, five-hour energy, a little concentrated shot of caffeine, and other uh, various stimulants, I took one of those because uh, I was exhausted on the day of the wedding. I didn't sleep very well uh, in the hotel downtown. Uh, You know, I don't sleep well as a general rule, as many of you know. I go in phases. And in Chicago, I was getting up at like 5 or 6 every morning for some unknown reason. And I was going to bed, I don't know, at around midnight or 1 at best. And then all day long, I was chasing my kid around, and I had a lot of family in town, aunts and uncles, uh, cousins, friends, and there was lots of socializing, lots of talking and navigating, and, you know, it gets exhausting. I felt uh, exhausted at times, and I wanted to be awake, uh, obviously, for my sister's wedding. I didn't want to be yawning and drowsy and dreaming of sleep the entire time, so... Uh, I took action, and I took a five-hour energy, and uh, it was great. <laughs> I really, It really was. It helped. I didn't feel edgy or speedy or weird, but I did feel alert. I felt awake, and I was able to hang on until 1 uh, and even later. Like, I don't think we even got back to the hotel until about 2 or 2.30 in the morning, and I was part of the last batch of people uh, to leave. Actually, it was the last batch. And uh, I feel good about this. I feel good about the entire situation. About uh, my behavior. And I feel relieved to no longer be carrying around this particular burden. This particular psychological burden. This weird sense of like false obligation that I had concocted in my brain over the years. Telling myself that I would be negligent in my duties uh, as a wedding attendee, and in this case as the brother of of the bride, uh, if I did not drink myself uh, into a stupor and to the point of illness. (laughs) Uh, You know, as it turns out, this is not the case, and I want to officially confirm this in a public forum right now. So, uh, okay, let's move on to the main event. My guest today is Emily Rapp, and I'm very pleased to have her here on the program. Her new memoir is called The Still Point of the Turning World, and it is available now from Penguin. Uh, For those of you who are not familiar with the book, it deals with illness and grief 
and parenthood, among other things. And it's about Emily's son, Ronan, who was diagnosed with Tay-Sachs disease at the age of nine months. Uh, Tay-Sachs is a terrible, terrible disease for which there is currently no treatment and no cure. Uh, It's always fatal, and it happens to kids. So I'm very sad to report that Ronan passed away earlier this year in February, and Emily's book was published to great acclaim just a month later. So I'm grateful to her for taking the time to talk with me about her book and about Ronan and about uh, herself and how she's managed to survive throughout all of this. And I think you're going to really like the conversation. And I should add that there's not a better writer working today than Emily. She has uh, a magnificent mind, and there's just great uh, clarity and power in her work, and in this book in particular, uh, which is not only about loss, uh, but it's also about life and how to live in the face of great darkness and difficulty. Um, And then last but not least, uh, I want to ask for your help. As I mentioned uh, just a moment ago, there is currently no cure uh, or treatment for Tay-Sachs disease, but people are working on finding one. And so I hope if you're in the me, uh, if you're of the means, you will take a moment to visit uh, the National Tay-Sachs and Allied Diseases website at ntsad.org, where you can make a donation. Anything helps. So, uh, and there's no cause more worthy than this. So please visit ntsad.org and lend a hand if you can. Okay. Uh, all right. So let's get on with the program. This right here is my conversation with Emily Rapp and her book once again is called the still point of the turning world. I'm in New Mexico in a little mining town called Madrid, which is a really small town of 175 people near Santa Fe full of Vietnam veterans and miner shacks and people called Johnny one time and um, what else? Someone one-eyed Bob or something like that. <laughs> so that's where I am. <laughs> Jesus, it sounds, it sounds, uh... <laughs> it's like, people still get like in fights out front of the biker bar down the road. Um, <laughs> and I live in an, an old converted church. So I'm in the, the choir loft actually, which is, um, a de- like a workspace. Oh my God. This sounds amazing. I don't know. It's it totally amazing. So, okay. So you live, or you live in a, in a, in a converted church. Yes. Well, how did you was, wind up there? Well, I um, I fell in love with someone and who had renovated this beautiful space and had bought it um, from some other people who ran, had started renovating it. It was a um, a functioning parish in the 50s for this part of New Mexico, northern New Mexico. And um, so, yeah, now we live in it together. Wow. So that's kind of how I, I mean, I never thought I would live in a converted church, but it's kind of ironic given that. My dad's a pastor, and well, like that's what I was going to say. It's just kind of funny, and it's it's like such a, it's such a cool badass space too. It's like so not like a church. Oh my god, I want to see pictures of this thing. It's it's amazing. It's on Facebook. Oh, it I, is. Can, I can ask him on some on Facebook. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I guess then like the the most logical and uh, sort of I don't know. I feel silly uh, asking the question, but I I feel like I have to at the, at the outset. Is how are you doing? <laughs> Um, oh no! It's, I mean, you know, it's weird. Yesterday I had um, um, a strange. I mean, I, you know, we were and died on February fifteenth, so it hasn't been that long. And I think until yesterday, I was kind of numb around it and just kind of 
quiet. And I read actually on the plane back from Los Angeles, never read poems on the plane. I don't know what I was thinking. Um, I read Megan O'Rourke's book once, which I had um, bought when I was on a panel with her at the LA Times Book Festival. And I read it and it's about the death of her mom and the poems are so great. And it, it kind of like loosed something in me. So I've been having to come in like a weepy stage of grief, but I'm okay. Okay. It's a long answer to the question. Well, I mean, know. I don't know. Grief is so weird. And then last night I was up in my church because apparently there's a ghost in the church. No, so what, like Kent's mother has seen it. My boyfriend's mother had seen it when she was alive. And I've never seen this girl that goes in the church. And so last night I was up writing bad poems like all night and kind of sleepless. And I was like, okay, now's when I want to see the ghost. So I was like trying to get her to come out, but no dice. See, I never see ghosts. Like, you know, what I'm yeah, I mean, like yeah. you, you hear about it and this place is haunted or this place is haunted and you have, you know, but no. they, they never, no. come, they never come out for me. <laughs> no, me either. They don't like me. And I was going to say too, you know, when you were talking about reading poetry on the plane, uh, you know, I'm always like, I have this funny story that I might've even talked about on this show before, but, uh, I watched, uh, the movie radio on a plane once the, where, oh, God. yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> Why? I, cause it was on and it was like, the, oh, right. it was the in-flight movie and I'm sitting there in my, and I'm weeping and I'm like, what is going on? I think people are just more emotional on airplanes. Yeah. I think so too. And you're just kind of like, you're suspended in air in this little pocket of concrete. It's just, just strange feeling and i've been on planes so much that it was just kind of for me it was strange to have any kind of response on a plane except to like you know fall asleep with my mouth hanging open you know so i was like wow i'm doing something productive pretty soon i'm like (laughs) (laughs) oh my goodness so um just for people listening uh who you know who might not be as familiar as i am with um your your book and you know the story of your life in recent times can you just give like a you know a broad overview of the still point of the turning world and Ronin and what you've been through for the past couple of years? Yeah. So the book, The Still Point of the Turning World, is about um, getting a diagnosis for my son, who at the time was nine months old. And he has he had Tay-Sachs. He died of Tay-Sachs disease. And so over the and, subsequent... And, and I'm, yeah. sorry, I'm sorry, but, but what is Tay-Sachs disease for people who it's, don't know? Well, it's the number one shittiest disease of all time. It beats everyone. It beats all those diseases. It's the worst, I think, because it happens to children they don't live beyond usually five or six um and there's no treatment there's no cure and it's the lack of a, of a stupid enzyme in, the, in, in like it's not a stupid enzyme it's actually the enzyme that keeps us alive called hex a and that enzyme helps clear lipids from the body especially the brain so the brain gradually builds with these lipids and so the the people you know kids who are affected with Tay-Sachs lose their vision first and then they lose all volitional ability um, and then they, they finally can't eat and their body shuts down. Um, so it's just sort of from his nine month mark, it was just sort of a slow, gradual fade of him until his death. Um, so that's, that's Tay-Sachs. It's good times oh and it's nasty. It's the nastiest disease. Like, I just can't think of anything like, I mean, the only good thing about it is that Rona had no idea that he was sick. Like he wasn't like someone who was, you know, had this whole cognitive understanding of their life and then watched it slip away. So he wasn't suffering, but the people who, I mean, he was physically suffering um, at the end, especially, but at the, you know, emotionally he wasn't suffering, you know, but we were, you know, everyone was. So So the book is about that. It's about parenting. It's about, you know, kind of confronting this crap universe moment and just trying to figure out how people have dealt with despair because that's, how I felt. Well, yeah. Yeah. I, I was there the other night. You read at the uh, the Nervous Breakdown Literary Experience from the book, 
And in you know your opening remarks before you started reading, you were talking about Ronan, and you said something to the effect of, uh, you know, he didn't live for very long. He didn't learn to speak, but he taught me more about life than any mm-hmm. human being that I've ever met. And I thought that was really beautiful. And I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about what he taught you. Yeah, I mean, at first I was really reluctant to sort of brand him as a teacher because some people, sometimes people would say, "Oh, Ron's a Buddha." I'm like, actually, he's just a really sick boy. You know, like <laughs> let's not let's not mythologize this poor child. You know. Right. But then, but then I, you know, I really felt that he completely transformed my life in this, like in almost every way. Like he forced me to look at things and make decisions. And he was such a beautiful, pure presence of a person without doing anything. Like he didn't achieve anything. And I think a lot of us, you know, neurotics um, have these narratives about like, you know, we, we are what we do or what we achieve. And he just, there was no concept of that. And just being with him was just like the most peaceful experience, even though it was like agonizing in some emotional way, like somatically it was fantastic. Um, and just, just this idea that he taught me too, that, you know, just chaos is right there. It's right, it's right next door. It's right down the street. It's at the marathon, you know, wherever. Mm. And that we sort of buck against it. And it's, it's like you have to let it in in order to let in some of the ordering elements too. I mean, I, I don't know if that makes sense about this. Dualities. I mean, he really taught me about dualities. Yeah, that makes a lot of hold sense. Both. That makes a yeah. lot of sense. You know, like, like the stuff that you write about. Um, and I've heard, you know, I've read you on, on TNB, I've read, um, from the book and then in interviews and stuff, but it's an important point and it's sort of a radical idea in the context of modern contemporary existence or, you know, on a, right. uh, just yeah. the idea that, you know, you can't have happiness without suffering. Yeah. Uh, they're in, they're inextricable. And yeah. I think for so many of us, it's like something's wrong if we're suffering or suffering is bad and we need to get rid of suffering. And yeah, the truth like is he'll do this with that. Yeah. yeah. And so I don't know. I mean, you can probably speak about it better than I can, but that hit home. And I think it's a really important point. Yeah. I mean, there's this great quote by C.S. Lewis about, um, you know, it's like a big old long C.S. Lewis sentence, but it, it basically ends saying like, you know, if you don't, if you don't want your heart broken, don't give it to anyone. Don't give it to an animal. Don't give it to a rock. You know, surround yourself with little little pleasures and small luxuries, and your heart will stay the way it is. It will stay, like, unbroken and irredeemable, essentially. I mean, I'm completely slaughtering his quote. But it's basically like, yeah, if you're not going to let yourself go to that place, then you're not going to go anywhere. And, of course, anyone who's been a parent knows that there's I – don't, I wouldn't say that you love a child more – um, I think that's kind of a myth that we do around the whole life. You never know love until you know a child. It's like, well, then the people who don't have children don't know love. That doesn't make any sense. But I do think it's qualitatively different. So you are charged with this protection, right? You protect your child. So it's a primal thing. It's a primal, like, slap in the face to have a kid. And they're like, actually, there's nothing you can do except watch him die. And it's just like, that can't be. But it is. <laughs> so I think, you know, that's kind of and a lot of people have greet those same kinds of conundrums in their own life. Like you get cancer when you're 25 and die. I mean, people die all over the world of diarrhea. I mean, these things do happen, but we don't think they're going to happen to us, especially here. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm just thinking about death in general and how closed off we are from it, like how little contact we have with that level of human suffering in our culture. It's like we don't want to see it. Or it we don't want to see it. It's definitely no. like we don't want to see it, you know, and I think that 
you know, I don't think that you need to like, you know, live there 24 seven, but I think we would benefit from a little bit more uh, honest confrontation with reality. Right. I mean, yeah, people, you know, I just kind of an awful dark humor moment, but you know, I'd have Ronan out in the Santa Fe and I had written an article about him and a lot of people knew who he was. It's, you know, it's basically a small town and people would be like, Oh, it's so sad. I don't know how you're, I don't know why you, how you can even live. And I would just die. And I'm like, what do you think is happening here? Like, you think you're going to live forever? You know? So I was like, I'm going to, I was joking, but I was like, I'm going to get like him a t-shirt that says me first, then you. Like, <laughs> you think you're not going to die, or you think that your kids are completely immune because you have money, or you're, you're good to them, or they're good people. They might get addicted to drugs. They might kill themselves. They might get hit by a car. I mean, to be a parent, as my friend Rachel Dewaskin said perfectly, is to be sort of liquefied with terror, like, all the time. That's what I say. That's what I say to my friends. Yeah. And whenever they get pregnant uh, for the first time, I'm just like, welcome to, to, the, to a permanent state of fear. <laughs> yeah, welcome to a permanent state of fear. Exactly. And, and that's like, so yeah, so having a baby that's like, actually, you know, this beautiful child is going to die. It's just disgusting. And it's like completely nonsensical. But that's what happened. And so I think, you know, of course, that's a transformative experience. But it, it did teach me like, wow, you know, all this crap that I've been worried about in my own like life, I don't even know if I'm going to be alive tomorrow. And it's not like I'm going around like doing it, recreational drugs and being crazy. It's just that I feel like I'm much more brave in terms of I think what I'm what I'm do artistically and and just you know i just let go of so much stuff like dumb stuff that was like not necessary that i'm mad that i carried around for decades yeah well i mean yeah because that's the thing and i mean i'm guilty of this too you know in my in kind of like the, this virtual community because i just met you in person for the first time but right um you know there was like a real virtual community and i felt a real emotional connection to uh, your story and Ronan's story and I followed it and I think a lot of people did that and I think there's something really beautiful about that but I, I'm guilty of thinking to myself like I can't even imagine and right. I read in an interview where you were like well imagine you know and I was like yeah she's right and then uh, I think about my own child and uh, you know if something were to happen to her and you know you tell yourself oh god I would just disintegrate life would be over but right. the truth is that life goes on, yeah. um, you know, somehow in some way and like talk about that because I think for so many people and so many parents, that's like where they stop with it. It's so painful to, to contemplate, um, that they just say, uh, and they shut down and they say, you know, it would be over, but you know, you're proof that you, you go right. on, you know, you find a way and like, look at, I think the act of writing this book, um, is, is a heroic act of, um, self-preservation. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's some of the criticism that's been leveled at me about, you know, like, why weren't you, you know, I can't believe you wrote this book when your kid was dying. And I was like, well, what else was I going to do? Like, he didn't move. I mean, I can't just stare at him all day. Like, I wanted to, to write something where he lived inside of it because he was dying. And, and I think for me, it totally saved me. I mean, I don't know, you know, I, I think a lot of people when they're faced with something like this, have a, there's a, there's a you know, myriad of reactions, none of which is better than the other. But mine was basically just like, oh, yeah, you dealt me this. Fuck you. Like, I'm going to write a book. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, this is not going to, like, stop my life. Um, and, you know, I don't know where that came from. I think it was just kind of a, uh, it's a human thing. Like, humans are built to withstand things that seem completely incomprehensible to even go through. I mean, that's just, that's how we are. Life goes on. It's like, and then, you know, today I was writing, you know, more of my sort of 
mediocre poems about like it just gross the grass is growing i'm just annoyed i'm like i don't like i don't want spring here with these birds flying around making nests in the friggin choir loft thing and you know i don't want these mice running around my kitchen like i just i don't want things to be alive in a way it just seems like a like a assault and that's but i think how everyone feels after a death um it's like how can the world be going on it's like impossible and yet, it, like the life. and yet it does, and it does for everyone. Like, no, no, nothing is nothing is going to kill you unless it actually kills you. Like, you will go on. You might be a different version of yourself. You might be slightly shattered. You might be, you might never recover. But you will keep getting up in the morning. I mean, well, unless you don't. I was going to say because there's like I, I'm for, my mind is leaping to uh, Kurt Vonnegut of all people, and like oh, I just remember this war story he told when he was a POW about um, you know one of the guys in his platoon or whatever who uh-huh. basically just shut down and he, yeah. he based the character on him so you know i think that you need to give yourself a little bit of credit for <laughs> having some pretty remarkable strength because oh thanks some people thanks. some people do just shut down you know and some uh, people do and i think yeah. that you by taking the course that you've taken and by sharing the way that you've shared, which is, you know, also um, a big act of courage, you know, the level of intimacy in your writing uh, and emotion in your writing and just to confront all of this and to do it in a public way and to let people in. Uh, yeah, that's not that's not necessarily normal. <laughs> and, oh, no, you know, no. I don't know. I just I think you need to give yourself a pat on the back for that. Or oh, some, thanks. Somebody I'm doing that some, now. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, and I think people, I, you know. I sort of silently bristled as you were saying people were leveling criticism at you for writing while this was happening. That seems like that's the silliest thing in the world. Well, you know, that's a gender issue. I really believe that. That's like, I mean, that's made me think a lot about, you know, when when you're a woman and you, if you decide to have children or you don't decide to have children, there's judgment in both of those scenarios. And if you go back to work, what's, what's a working mom do? What does a mother do? What does a grieving mother do? What does a griever do? It's like all of these expectations we have around those different categories of people in one person. And people are just like, oh, they don't, it's like, you know, if I were a man, I think who'd written this book, people would be like, oh my God, what an amazing man. What do you, you know what, what I mean? What a deep, like sensitive What a deep man. dude. Yeah. <laughs> Instead, it's like, oh, why aren't you like, I don't know what mothers are supposed to do, like not create or just fling themselves in the funeral pyre. Like that wasn't going to be for me. Um, and believe me, it wasn't that I wasn't sad enough. Like I've had a lot of people asking that, like, oh, you don't seem that sad. I'm like, oh my God, you have no idea how sad I am. You know, you just, you, you've not been in this, you know, it reminds me of that scene, like, um, ugh, that in the movie, Sophie's choice, when she's like been through all this stuff and you find out what happens to her and she's just kind of wild and like overly sexualized. And that's her way of sort of, you know, compartmentalizing the other sadness. Right. But she never forgets it. It's like that speech that she gives where she's talking about, you know, choosing which child to just try to save. And you, you don't forget that stuff. It's just, it's in you. Like it's like cellular, so I don't, I don't, you know, the only difference for me, I think now, and I think a lot of grievers will understand this, is that there's a kind of liberation after someone's sick dies, because it's better to be dead than that sick, clearly, mm. when you get to that point. And also, you have this whole other stage of grief where you're not waiting for it to happen. So when you are grieving, it feels like a, a release rather than a sort of additional burden, which is a little bit how I felt. In the, in the years leading up to Ronan's death, it was just like, that grief for me was worse than this. Well, the anticipation. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know, I remember um, 
reading something you either wrote or said about, you know, that the, the most intense moment of grief for you was his diagnosis. Oh, yeah. I was freaking out of my mind. I was out of my mind. I mean, every way you can be out of one's mind, I was out. <laughs> and I stayed out. <laughs> I was definitely off the chain for a while. And sometimes still I have those moments of just like, whoa. And and actually that was, I think, kind of some kind of brain seizure that I had. Um, and it helped me in my work. It certainly didn't help me in my like normal non-writerly life, but it certainly helped me in my work. So here's a question for you. Um, for people who are listening, most of whom have not been through what you've been through, at least not at the le- this level of intensity or as recently. Um, I think that's fairly safe to say. Yeah. Uh, what for somebody in in your position, like what do you want from friends and from strangers? Do you know what I'm saying? Because I think so, yeah. so many people have such great intentions, but I'm sure you know better than anybody that this can make people weird and or at oh, least yeah, like totally. clumsy emotionally. I've been I I woke up last night at two a.m. fearing this interview because I'm oh no yeah I've been up I've been <laughs> oh, up no. since oh, yeah I'm like panicky to talk about it because I just don't want to fall into those traps or say something silly, but you know what, what I think it might be useful for people to hear. Like when somebody is going through uh, a really difficult time like this uh, involving loss and is grieving, like what, what should they do? You know, I think it's, um, and I can only speak for what I would have found comforting and the, the people who I really appreciated um, the most in terms of that aspect of what you're describing, the help, helping with the grief process when people would, didn't try to fix it. And, and would sort of share, like, a lot of my grief manifested as just anger and rage, which is, you know, a stage or part of it or something, one of those stages. And it's, that's never really left me. It just makes me angry that the world can that do this to a baby or to me or to anyone. Like, why do these things exist? It's just like this existential howl, you know? And I think when people are like, yes, it totally sucks. It's the saddest thing in the world. This is awful. That real talk is so much better for me than magical thinking. Like, you know, you know, my older relatives or, you know, Jesus wanted Ronan or he's an angel, you know, whatever. I find that really offensive on every level, but they're like 100,000 years old. So it's like I just read it and, you know, look at it and put it away. But I think, you know, practice so that that's like one thing I think you can just be like, wow, that is just totally that, that's just fucked up, you know, just like validate the fact that the person's like, you know, shattered. And the other is that I think um, people it's, everyone's different. Like and some people want to be private in their grief. Other people don't, but you don't know until you ask. And and I always say, like, I have a friend who's going through something really difficult and um, she, and I'm like, you know, what, whatever you guys need, just let me know. You don't have to respond to these like daily texts, love texts. You don't have to do anything, but know that if you need groceries or you need this, I will do that. And then mean it. Cause I had a lot of people be like, Oh, anything you need, anything you need. And then I'd be like, actually I need like, um, a sandwich and they'd be like, well, I'm actually busy, you know? <laughs> right. So, and that didn't happen very much, but I'm just saying that like, you know, if, if you're, or, or just saying, if you don't feel like helping, which is fine too, you can just say, you know what, that's really difficult and I'm going to be thinking about you. And that's all you can do. You can't fix it. I think that's what the trouble is that we think we can fix things. And there's just, there's no fixing mortality. It's just like, we're not gods. This is, you know, we're it. That's just, this is it. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's what I found the most comforting and, um, Actually, one woman, I don't know why I just thought of this, who's the, um, I hardly know her, I met her one time at my friend's child's birthday party. 
I think she must have been 23 and she came and she had Ronan with me and she came up to me and she said, I don't know about him, um, but I can see that he's different and I'd like to know more about him. And I was just like, I love you because <laughs> she wasn't afraid to approach me. She was interested and curious, but she, she didn't say I'm sorry or, the, you know, she didn't say I'm sorry. She was just like, okay. She just kind of listened and then she held him. I mean, it was just like really kind of like this is, it is what it is. Yeah. Well, and it's like the fear. And the thing too, is that I feel, <clears throat> I feel like there's some level of, um, maybe selfishness is too strong of a word, but when people start like letting their fear overtake their compassion, mm-hmm. that's, that can be annoying. It's like, you know, listen, annoying. yeah, this is, this is happening to us and to him. And like, I'm, I'm hearing about, you know, and I feel bad about that. It's like, I don't want to like be expressing how, terrifying it is to contemplate something like that you know you need to be there for the person and get outside of yourself you know yeah i mean i think you know chris abani is a friend of mine and he always you know when he we talked a lot about this this sort of difference between empathy and sympathy and you know empathy sort of implicates the empathizer in a way saying like wow that's really difficult um, in a way that's like, okay, we're all in this kind of human endeavor collectively or sympathy. Like I feel so sorry for you, or I would die if I were you, or those kinds of things are total distancing maneuvers. And it makes the person feel like so much more isolated. Um, you know, I, I just think, and, and that's, that's proven time and time again. Like, you know, we all know these stories. Like, I mean, there's people I know who, there are people I know who were healthy when Ronan was diagnosed and now have some crappy illness. Like at least a few people I know, and you know they didn't know that was going to happen, right? <laughs> you know, so they were like, you know, we're so upset. How can this happen to Ronan? And then it's like, oh, now it's happening to me. I mean, it's all going to happen to us. Yeah. All of us are going to have that happen to us. And I think it's just not. Um, it to just, I don't know. Put, to put your head in the sand is just so unhelpful. It's just magical thinking. Never helped me. And for some people, it's really effective. Yeah, I can't get there either. It's got to be like I, you know, I, I prefer, I think what you prefer. <laughs> like, yeah, like look straight at talk. You, I, Hello. Think, I think writers too. I think writers in general have that predisposition to want to look at the thing, and right? To touch, I mean, most of them anyway, to touch the hot stove or whatever, and and to yeah. actually feel it and experience it and think about it, and um, you know, which brings me to the writing of the book, uh, right? Which I think is really fascinating on a creative level. Uh, both personally, but also, you know, on behalf of my audience, because, you know, I think so many of us entertain, or at least I've done this before, where you think to yourself, God, if something, what if something really bad happened, you know, would it, uh, would it loosen all sorts of creative energy in me? Like I think about, right. for example, I think about like a Kurt Vonnegut who went through the firebombing at Dresden and saw right. like, all these horrors in World War II, or you think about any number of war novelists or people who go, right, through, right. go through these math- massive cataclysms and in turn lose a lot of the stupid fear that paralyzes like the stupid small fear, you know, that paralyzes so many, uh, writerly people. So like, talk about that, you know, like how you suddenly unleashed. I I know that you said you had hyper, is it hypergraphia? Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. I had some kind of like weird hypomanic fit. Um, I think it may be called mental illness, but (laughs) yes, I did. I did. I had this, um, you know, I just had this kind of, compulsion to, I, I, and I don't know, it's hard for me to kind of remember those days because it, I was, it was such a blur and I, I, I was started to write. And once I started to write about Ronan, all of this stuff came up and it was kind of like, 
it was the kind of writing I'd always wanted to do. It kind of blended a sort of theological, philosophical perspective with, you know, theories, not necessarily like I'm the philosopher, but, you know, trying to unravel certain things that don't make sense. So it was just like having like a big ball of yarn and just like trying to, you know, unrolling it, unrolling it, and then rolling it back up. It was basically like I was Sisyphus with words is kind of how I felt. It was just like kept trying to climb up to a reason and sort of tumbling back down. But the process was really fulfilling to me because it made me feel like I was at least doing something besides running around like screaming or wanting to die or hitting my head against the wall. I mean, I was, you know, I was like a wild person with my grief. That's how it manifested. And it was intense. And so, you know, I couldn't do that all the time. And so when I wasn't doing that, I was just writing furiously. Okay. So and, the, the, yeah. the act of writing, because like the act of writing for me is to like write a sentence, hit delete 27 times, yeah. rewrite it. Like, was this just like a flood? Were you not checking yourself? Was it? Oh, I wasn't checking anything at all. I was just like, if I don't do this, I'm going to, I was just doing it. And I've never had a problem producing things. I've always had, I mean, I mean, I have a trouble with, I have too many words basically. And I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't check anything. I was just like flooding it all out. And then I would, but I did like when I started doing the blog on a more regular basis, I would edit those posts. I mean, it was, it came out really raw and then I would go back and I would work with it and shape it. And that was the really meaningful part for me, but no, I didn't check anything. And, and that was actually great because I got to some different kind of writing that um, I wouldn't have gotten to before. Um, I wish I could have gotten there in any other way, um, but I didn't. So, you know, I, I always tell my students the story that when I went, I went to Spain for like half of a residency that was offered me to write, sort of finish this book, and I was just nuts. I mean, I didn't sleep. I was running around. I was like wandering around town in the middle of the night. <laughs> I mean, I was out of it. But I was writing this stuff. It was electrifying. Like, I was just couldn't stop. And finally, I called my girlfriend in London, and I was like, dude, you have to come get me because I'm, like, losing it. I'm losing my grip. I could, I could feel it, you know? And she came and took one look at me and was like, okay, whopping with Xanax and, like, a really large beer and a nap. Like, you have got to go to sleep, you crazy banshee. <laughs> um, but I wrote some of the best parts for me that when I read the book, which I don't do, when I had to read it for the final time, when I got to the parts that I wrote in that state, I loved them because I felt like I was, I wasn't like channeling someone else, but I was getting to a deep part of myself that I had always been afraid to go to worried that it would tip over into this like psychosis essentially. You know, I mean, I thought if you, if you get, you know, you hear about these crazy writers, right? We're all kind of nuts. And I was afraid that would be me. So that was a, kind of a stupid small fear, I think. Um, maybe not. Maybe it's a big one. But I got rid of that. Now I just like write what I want, I think, and I just I think don't not, care. Not like being afraid of going insane is not a small fear. <laughs> no, probably not. But being afraid of whether or not people like you or like what you write is a small fear. I don't give a crap if people right. like what I write. I really don't care anymore. I'm just like you like it, great. If you don't, I don't care. Right. <laughs> like you know, it's great when people get it, but it's fine if they don't. Yeah. And I never felt that way before. I was, I was like, who likes me? Oh, no one's going to like my book. It's just like, oh, my God. Please, really? Right, right. And so that's, a, so that's another question because this book has come out. I think the critical reception has been largely very positive. Uh, I know that it's been selling well or at least decently well, right? I mean, you've had, right. you've had a great push for this book. And it's like in so many ways uh, as an author, it's everything you dream of. But then to um, you know, uh, set this up against – 
what you've just been through, you know, it's it's a different experience than most authors would have. Yeah. You know? So like, what's it been well, yeah. like? What's it been like to have it come out and have you to, to realize this, you know, dream or whatever to have a book published and do well, um, but to have this new perspective. I think it doesn't matter as much to me as it would have, which is good. Because that means I'll write something else, and it won't take me like nine years to write something new. I won't be like, oh no, you know, right. all gripped with my own neurosis. And I also think um, that's me, by the way. Yeah, you know, that's everybody. Yeah. I mean, listen, I was just something out this morning, so it's not like I'm like free and easy up there in my little <laughs> writing space. But um, uh, I think it, you know, obviously, what's for me is the great sort of awful irony is that, you know, and people can believe this or not. I think sometimes people have. I have had people tell me that they don't believe me when I say this, but I would, um, those people aren't my friends, but, um, that, you know, I would trade this to have my child back. I mean, anyone who thinks I wouldn't is bonkers. I mean, I, it doesn't matter to me in, in the way that it would have before Ronan was sick. I mean, it just doesn't, I mean, I miss him. I would have him, I would trade everything, including like my own life to have him back. Well, yeah, I, I remember you, um, Again, I can't remember where I read it or if it was an interview or if it was it was prose, but you said you would walk through a tunnel of fire. It's like this really, you know, yeah. se- searing image. Uh, not to yeah. too fine a point I mean, on it, but, you know, I, I get it. it. Yeah, really, it's like, you know, what's going to be sadder in my life? The death of my parents? I mean, that's going to be really awful, but it's not going to be like losing a child. It's just different. It's not worse. It's just that this is the, in a way, it is the worst thing. It's the, it's the most complicated, the saddest thing, the, the biggest loss. And I, and I don't, I don't like those lottery terms. But like even my own death, I'm going to be like, oh well, you know, like, <laughs> you know, I did not think I was going to survive, you know, Ronan's final moments, like, and, and what came after, and I did. So I just feel like everything else is going to be not going to be a cakewalk, but it's not going to be that. And thank God, you know, unless, you know, something else awful happens. But, you know, even if even if something else awful happened, it would still like it was um, losing that particular that particular person like Ronan, like he's not a repeatable thing. Like, I think a lot of people have said to me, oh, well, it's so sad that he's your only child. And I'm just like, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Like, as if it would be better, like <laughs> as if it would somehow take away the sting to have another kid like they're not interchangeable they're not border collies like they're not <laughs> this was a, this was a person he was a person and he's not replaceable and i think that that is kind of shocking and a lot of people say that oh it's such a tragedy that he's your only child that you have no more children and i'm like well it wouldn't we wouldn't be if i had another kid <laughs> like it doesn't make any sense yeah i just think people i mean people I think, are stupid yeah really and it's just you know it's like they get it's like they they get really afraid, and I think when you're afraid, you lose your thoughts or something. You know, it's just hard, it's hard for people to conceptualize. Uh, yeah. So you you turn to books. I mean, I think that like what goes hand in hand with the hypergraphia and like the really intense, like almost manic uh, writing that you did throughout this process is the fact that you also read like voraciously and. You know, like we didn't actually, I don't think it was said in these particular words earlier with regard to the writing, but um, I think it's worth saying that when you're going through something like this and, you know, I've been there on a, on a smaller level, um, just to externalize it, you're dealing with so much internally, so much like chaos internally, extreme pain and difficult emotion, just to get it outside of yourself and onto a piece of paper where you can kind of 
turn it around and look at it from different angles is like, you know, that has an extreme, uh, or that has a therapeutic value. And yeah, oh, definitely. And then as, as well, uh, was you, uh, was your decision to, to read and to go to books. So can you talk about the books that were important to you and how mm-hmm. you were reading throughout this? Um, well, I was just, I was just reading a lot and kind of jumping around between books, um, which is something I've always done. I had like this weird guilt thing about like, I'll have you reading like six books at once. And this time it worked great because I was sort of my, my concentration was so disparate that I could just like, you know, go over here and Frankenstein and then go over here and like read an Acadian myth, go over here to Jane Kenyon. <laughs> and I had all these books and like, you know, it was a big disaster, like all over the bed and all these things. So I think I, you know, Frankenstein obviously is a huge part of the book or that tale which is the creation tale, it's myth of Prometheus, basically what happens when we create, what chaos is created by creation itself. That was a huge, I love that book, and I've, I've always been haunted by it in some weird way. Um, it's also kind of a ridiculous book, so it's kind of fun to read. Um, and then I kind of wanted to go back to those old, you know, I was like reading Gilgamesh and like enjoying it, you know, because it was just this, this portrait of a man freaking out over grief and he was just like pulling his hair out and rending his garments and howling and you know I felt that way and so that was important um a lot of different poems that I I learned a lot of Sylvia Plath a lot of Jane Kenyon my friend Phil Party whose first book I loved um was um in the my MFA program in Texas I read his book over and over again because it was written by someone I care about and it was so deeply sweet and meditative and profound and that I found great to, to read. Um, Carson McCullers, like lots of lyrical novelists. Um, I, you know, th- those are the things I read and I read them like in bits and pieces, you know, half here. And then a month later I'd finish it. And it was just kind of all over the place. But you got, but you, you were getting some degree of comfort and understanding. Oh yeah, and, you know, I just felt like it gives your mind something to do. I mean, you, you. That's why we. I mean, that's why all of us kind of read in the first place, right? We read to escape whatever it is, or to go to a different place. And not everybody enjoys that travel, <laughs> and some people do. Writers do because otherwise, what are we doing? But um, I think, yeah, I found that incredibly sustaining just because it made my mind do something besides sprint to Ronan's death, which is what it was, you know, doing all the time for two and a half years in the background. But when that wasn't in the forefront every moment, it was like a relief. Sure. Yeah. Well, and I think there's something to be said too for choosing wisely. Like I've been thinking a lot about this lately with regard to like uh, consumption, you know, consumption of books, consumption of online media, consumption of whatever, you know, like it's very easy to just kind of flip through some trashy magazine or flip through some website that has just absolutely no value. But like you, I think you had good instincts, you know, in terms of what you were reading. Uh, you know, if, you, if you're going to escape and, and distract yourself with something, you could have done much worse. Yeah. Oh, def- oh, yeah. I mean, I couldn't actually couldn't read the fluffy, any fluffy stuff. I mean, all I could read was the stuff that was like made my head hurt, like Hegel. I mean, God, if if anyone had told me I would even be like cracking open that book, except to have it on my shelf to make me look smart in my office, (laughs) I would have been like, you're nuts. And I was like, give me the Hegel, you know, (laughs) couldn't get enough of his charts and his frickin' sentences that make no sense because it was just like a pool to struggle in, you know, and it was like a puzzle or something. Words with friends, only like with, you know, books. So I, it made it feel like a game. 
Um, and so thinking was a game versus like this torturous sort of spiral into sad. Is, is there anything, is there anything, I mean, I, I feel like this might be a tough question, but was there anything that you pulled from reading or like a lesson or some sort of insight that you can point to and say, this was critical in helping me? You know what I'm saying? You know, yeah. I mean, I think what I learned from all of these books, which is going to sound like not a piece of advice at all, but is that no one really knows anything about anything ever <laughs> at all. It's like, wow, we're really clueless. We're really stupidly knowledgeable. It's just like a bunch of stupid stuff we know. And I, I think that was great for me. I was like, wow, no one really knows how to do this. You know, and I remember we went to, um, I just wrote about this. We, uh, my boyfriend and I went to an Easter service. And, you know, I don't know why. We were like, it's Easter, let's go. So we went to the Episcopal Church, and of course we're late, so we're like in the front row, and I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> and it's like all the resurrection narratives, right? It's like Jesus risen, they go in the shroud. I was like, oh, my God, this, I forgot about this. It's about resurrection. Shit, you know? <laughs> so then I, we're like, I'm getting really upset in the service. Like, we leave, and I was like, you know that, like, the resurrection was made up by, like, a dude with a stone pencil. Like, there's no resurrection in the earliest gospel. They leave the stone, they leave him in the tomb and they like go off into the night. That's it. That's all there is. And then the gospel writers that came after were like, this is super depressing. What a downer. Like we have to resurrect Jesus. It's time for the Messiah. That's what happened. And so I kind of felt, I don't know where I'm going with this, but I, I sort of felt like that those kinds of, those narratives were the ones that I wanted to think about when Roman was dying. Like, like these fantasies of, well, you know, these biblical fantasies that are, you know, people believe in them, but they're ultimately stories. Well, like they're like um, cartoon. I mean, I don't know. I have, I was, uh, I was in Israel last fall and I was in Jerusalem and, uh, you know, just like a, it was a, an insane trip. I was doing some book research. Uh, I'd never been there before. I'm not Jewish. Great. I love Israel. Yeah. So I go there and I'm in, I go to like the church of the Holy Sepulchre. Uh, and I'm looking at the supposed site where they've laid his body on the slab of... Oh, yeah, they have the slab there, yeah. Yeah, and it's like this slab looks like it was like just brought in from like you know, the granite factory down the street. I'm like, and people are like kneeling down and like touching their forehead on it. And I'm like, that that's not the slab, people. Like, let's get real here. Like, it just... I know. I can't access it at that level. But I find myself a little bit envious, a little bit envious of people who can buy into all that and how much comfort, how much comfort it brings them, you know? yeah. I mean, I find I find comfort in the ritual of belief, without actually subscribing to any of the um, sort of creedal elements of Christianity. Like, I love the Episcopal Church because, you know, there's there's incense and you know robes and gold, you know. And in the Lutheran Church, it's like a, a plain cross and like everyone sits down and stands up at the same time, very organized and Scandinavian, and or German. And you know, in, in the Episcopal Church, it's just like you know, people are singing and swinging things and they got roughs on their choir outfits. And so that, that kind of sensory thing was another thing that I found was part of the reading experience and um, just sort of like the somatic experience of being in a book. If the, the writer's really good, um, it's, it's kind of like going through some kind of religious ritual or any place that has a ritualized element. And those places in Israel don't because they're like tourist sites. Right. That's how and I, I don't know what you're supposed to feel there because you're supposed to feel everything. And so as a result, you feel nothing at all. Um, you know, it's strange. Yeah. That's how I felt. I mean, it felt like, you know, walking those, like the streets of the old city, it felt just like religious tourism, just like almost, yeah. almost like I it's was what gonna, it is. Uh, yeah. Almost like I was going to see like Jesus bobblehead dolls for sale. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, pretty soon. You never know. Right. Right. Um, 
So, but, but yeah. Okay. So, but like with regard to, I mean, I know that you, you, you wrote, you turned to books, um, but then there are other elements, you know, like as we get into like thoughts about religion or spirituality, meditation, going to uh, the hospice for animals, being uh, at the, right. you went to a Zen retreat. Can you talk about, oh, I mean, yeah, talk about these experiences though. Cause I think, you know, you went through um, a lot of the paces and tried a lot of different things, which I think is to your credit, but you know, yeah. talk about that stuff. Well, I did, I did the Zen retreat, which is basically a retreat for hospice workers who accompany people in death. And so it was um, a way of kind of confronting end of life stuff. It was a really difficult three days, but ultimately really interesting and important, I think for me. Um, uh, and sort of, sort of making death like we're all dying kind of, you have to kind of get on board with that notion and you do that by meditating for like five hours. It's like awful, like five hours over the sum total of a day. It's just like torture. <laughs> and and you kind of get in touch with this great fear of your own mortality, which then helps you not be a total freak show when someone else is dying, which isn't helpful to them. So that, and the hospice for animals, I just thought it would be kind of nice to go and, and chill with some chilled out animals that weren't going to, you know, kind of frighten Ronan because he had a really strong startle reflex and that, you know, probably could use some touching and some happy energy. Um, so uh, I actually, actually want to start volunteering there because she lives, her ranch is just down the road from where I live now. And um, I also went to, I didn't put this in the book because it's, it's a little bit embarrassing, but I went to like five shamans. Like I had like a shaman session with some guy in Denmark on Skype. Um, I went to a shaman here who like journeyed for my power animal. Like I did all this stuff and it's a great, actually a great story of, um, I had, she told me my power animal was a gorilla. I was like, whatever. <laughs> I so I that. bought this like gorilla necklace and I'd lost it in the drain of a bathroom in Palm Springs and like Rob Robert and Tara Eisen got it out with like gum and like a hairpin. <laughs> I was like, my power animal, you know, I was just like desperate for my power animal. Um, so I did all that stuff just because it was, it was interesting. It was information. Um, I don't know. And I took, I took Rona to this like Japanese sensei acupuncturist. And um, I, I don't, I just did a lot of that kind of flailing around looking for something to do that would try to offer an explanation, even though I never would have accepted one. So I, I think that that kind of futile search is unfortunately part of the human condition. Well, for what it's worth. But again, I think it goes back to uh, strength and like, you know, being proactive as opposed to just like curling up into a ball, you know. Um, right. I don't know. There, there's something to be, there's a little bit to be gained from all those experiences, even if like individually, none of them deliver the full, the full comfort deal. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, just, you know, other perspectives, like. You know what else? What are, what are the what are the veils between this world and the next? You know, I don't want to get all Game of Thrones, but like I just think it's, <laughs> you know, I've I've thought about that a lot. Like you know, we don't we don't know. And you know, near the end of his life, I had all these weird these weird imaginings of Ronan, like you know, going off into like there was all these lake images, and he was at a lake with like people, people like grandparents I've never met who are like wearing bad turn of the century clothes and. Like my my friend's dad, who I never met, um, and you know people who were just kind of waiting on this shore, and that was really weird because I it completely goes against everything I say in the book about like there's no afterlife, and you know that was kind of helping me in those like, you know, last moments of his life to just be like okay, there's I see something, you know, yeah. we want to, we yeah. want to. Well, and you know, 
I don't I mean, I don't None of us know. We don't know. No, no and, one knows. And I think that, uh, but I think like scientifically it's provable that we're all dying uh, constantly, like our, at the cellular level, we're, like right now, as you and I are talking, you know, like we're aging and things are dying and cells are being reborn, and who knows, man? You know, like it. Yeah, no one knows. It's, I wi- know. it's wide open, and like that's in some way a comfort to me. And um, I guess maybe along the same kind of lines, um, with regard to kind of experimenting with different perspectives, I had somebody on this show. Uh, a while back who took part in a study at Johns Hopkins. I don't know if you read about it. There was a great story in the New York Times involving hallucinogens. Oh, I'd love to read that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's actually really, really good. It's about, like, terminally ill patients who are in, like, a clinically controlled... Oh, I think I remember hearing about this, but I haven't read it. Yeah, and so, you know, like, I, I guess then you, you did not experiment with any kind of, like... You didn't do like ecstasy therapy or mushroom therapy. No, I, you know, I smoked a lot of pot. I mean, I'll admit that. And, you know, I probably drank too many beers. I mean, I I just didn't, I'm not a drug girl. So I thank God, you know, someone (laughs) did once say to me, I think maybe it was someone like, you know, you should never try heroin because you would just love it. And I'm like, okay, I won't. I mean, I just don't like, I've been forbidden to do any kind of like upper by anyone who has spent more than five minutes with me. (laughs) So I, I think... I just don't, um, I mean, I definitely had my, my wild excesses, um, and fortunately nothing really happened to me, but I don't know if my wild excesses are that wild. I think I'm not that wild of a person, um, in terms of behavior. I mean, I, you know, yeah, well, I, I think, I think about me being wild and I think about some of my friends and I'm like, okay, I'm not, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like right. I'm pretty low key. Right, right. So I think, um, yeah, I, I I don't know. I I just didn't. Um, I did a lot of exercise. Like, you know, I just tried to get into different spaces when I was really struggling, and I still do that. Sure. I mean, you, I mean, God. I mean, I yeah. I, I need it just like as a normal person. I'm one of those exercise people. Like, if I don't. Yeah, me too. I'm a freak. I'm a freak if I don't move around. So yeah. Um, so I want to talk about uh, just you know a little bit about uh, your marriage and that part of it because the marriage did not survive this no. process. And I think mm-hmm. that for grieving people, um, it, it, you know, and for people in general, it's worth discussing because it puts such a strain on a relationship. And I'm just curious to hear your thoughts there and like what you, it's really hard. I mean, I think, you know, Rick was a great dad. He was an amazing father to Ronan. Um, I think when you have something like this happen in a marriage, it's like, it's such an unfair thing, you know, it's because it's like you both love the person so much and it's like your project and then it's gone. And it just, I think a lot of people, um, I mean, I don't know what, I haven't looked up the divorce rates cause that was depressing, but I mean, I think <laughs> it's pretty high among people who lose a child and they, you know, they don't have more children or, um, sometimes that like if their child is really, really ill for a long time, their child will get better and they'll still, they'll still split. So I think it's just such tremendous pressure on a person and then add that to, you know, a relationship and it's just a kind of a perfect storm. So no, it didn't last. I mean, um, and one of the weirdest things that happened to me in the last year of Ronan's life was I fell in love with this person who, you know, was totally willing to take on my completely insane life and love this boy that was at that time completely non-responsive and, you know, be with me when he died. So I think, you know, and I can tell you that I did not think that was going to happen. 
So I think, you know, all those hours I spent wailing on the phone, you know, I think we all feel that way. And then like, that is one of the good things about having been dealt like a really crap hand is that when something good happens to you, you're so friggin' excited and like, you just don't have time to think it's nuts or crazy. You're just like, Oh my God, I feel happy more, please. Well, no, it makes me want to read this uh, excerpt. You write, uh, and I'll quote you here, tucked inside the moments of this great sadness, this feeling of being punctured, scrambling and stricken were also moments of the brightest, most swollen and logic shattering happiness I've ever experienced. I realize you could not have one without the other, that this great capacity to love and be happy can only be experienced with this great risk of having happiness taken from you to tremble always on the edge of loss. Yeah, that pretty much sums it up. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, it makes you feel really vulnerable. You know, it's, it's like a really vulnerable feeling. Um, and I don't think I'll ever feel, I mean, I feel that way about everyone that I love now after Ronan died. Cause I, I know it can, they can die. You know what I mean? So there's this kind of PTSD aftershock of you have this beautiful baby and it dies. So you fall in love and then they die or like you know, your parents get hit by a car and die. You know, like everybody's like right on the edge of death in kind of, yeah. and I definitely have moments like that where I feel like, Oh my God, you know, it's all so jittery and jangly. And I try and then I of course kind of wig out and then I'm like, okay, well at least I can still feel things. You know, I'm like, I'm able to, 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 to risk still. I mean, I think you have to just get back in there, dude. And I think that's, that's the hardest part I think is wanting to go on after, something like this catastrophic life event happens, what are you going to do? Do you have a therapist or anything like that? Oh my God, I have so many. <laughs> yeah, I have, a, I have a therapist that talks on the phone and I have, um, Kent, my boyfriend and I went to a, a, a grief counselor. I mean, it's like, that's a hot date. Like, hey, you want to go to a grief counselor? It's like third date. Um, he's like, sure. <laughs> so, you know, went to a grief counselor and that was helpful. I sometimes see him on his own. And yeah, I mean, I definitely feel like I'm in the process and I'm pretty, and I've been doing it for two and a half years. So I I have moments where I'm like, why am I crying or why am I not crying? And you just kind of observe it and try to roll. I mean, but yeah, I have a lot of help. Um, Good. So I would hate to think of you doing this too much on your own. No, no, God, no. And I have, you know, a whole gaggle of women who are constantly calling me and texting me and getting mad that I don't write them back because I'm just like, eh. but you know, a lot of really attentive, awesome friends and community that I was really like sustained me. Um, and I, I also think, you know, have, having fallen in love and starting a, a life with someone new was a way of, I mean, I, I don't, I, I'm sure I would be in a different place if I weren't for that because it, it's, it's so that's transformative in the, in the opposite way that losing a child is. So it somehow is able to balance, um, out if that, and not like they're, they're equations, but, um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know what it would be like for me if I were not where I was now. I mean, I don't want to think about it. Yeah. Well, and, uh, you know, I didn't get to, uh, I didn't ask you earlier, um, about the dragon mother, essay oh, right. in the New York mm-hmm. times. I just, I, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about that because it was a big, kind of made some waves and it was uh in, in some ways a response to the whole tiger mom phenomena but like what is a drag what is a dragon mother uh what is a dragon mother in your well i came up with that because i you know i'd, I'd read the tiger mom book um and which actually my press did my my publisher did and um 
I, I read something about like Panda Dad, and then there was like uh, some people were like naming all these parental animals, <laughs> and I kind of was like, you know, at that point I had just gotten in touch. You know, it was like sort of Tay-Sachs parents were sort of off the map because nobody really wants to hear about their sad dying kids. Is kind of how I was feeling, which is, I mean, the, the group is great. That's a great group of parents and hugely supportive community. Um, and I just was like, you know, where we are, we're like these gross medieval dragons who stink and like breathe fire and like ruin everyone's time, you know. And but also there's all this dragon imagery of like the protector, you know, like stay away from my kids, or, you know. So it's sort of fierce and tender is kind of what I wanted to convey with that image. Um, and, and medieval, you know, very old, sort of this act, idea that the act of parenting is as old as being human beings, and that just this, the act for the sake of the act is sort of mythical anymore, because it's gotten so shrouded in stupid shit well, that, you know... Well, no, it's like in the whole, like, achievement culture and pre- prepping your kid to go to the best schools, and they go to, like... 16 different lessons and they're you know you have them in crazy that kind of parenting drives me up the wall and i i just i naturally recoil from it so i really loved you know there's something to be said for just being there you know like really yeah like really being there and not you know entertaining 16 different thoughts in your head while you're sitting next to your kid or texting right. you know <laughs> while driving well yeah yeah with your kid i mean you know the, the other thing is um I think too, like, I mean, I don't know how it was when you were a kid, but when I was a kid, it was like, you got on from school and you went outside and no one like asked you where you were going and you just, you know, you were supposed to be back at six or right. somebody in the neighborhood would come find you. Right. And we, we didn't have any lessons. We had like piano lessons from like someone in the church, you know, we didn't have any, we just read and like ran around. And I don't think kids get to do that very much. I mean, there was no pressure. I didn't feel any pressure to achieve when I was a child. I didn't even think about it. But then, you know, and this is like a whole different book and a different story, but uh, you, you're an amputee. And right. And why don't you talk just briefly about uh, your leg, just so people have some context and you can plug the yeah. first book too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, um, I, have a, um, I had a congenital birth defect, but so I had my left foot amputated when I was four. And then I have had an artificial leg spend for 30, whatever, I can't count, but more than 30 years. I'm 38. So, um, so yeah, I mean, that was, uh, that's, the book is kind of about, um, and the book is called the, the book. poster child, poster Post. child, because I was like running around talking about how great I, happy I was about having a wooden leg when I was six. And then when I was 16, <laughs> I was like, this sucks. <laughs> so that like led to this big crisis, you know, I was like, Oh my God, this is not good. So I think, you know, but, but I do think it's funny because, um, you know, I, my parents never were like, oh, don't try to learn to ride a bike. They were just like, well, just do it if you can. Here's a, here's a rope. <laughs> Go jump with it. <laughs> and I'm actually kind of thankful for that because I, I think that all the pressure that I talk about a lot of the achievement stuff in poster child and how when you, when you have some kind of like significant difference, whatever that is, skin color, gender, sexuality, you feel this additional pressure to achieve because you're sort of compensating for like not being like, I don't know, a middle-aged white man from Brooklyn or whatever the standard is. <laughs> I mean, really. And I think that's, um, or a blonde cheerleader. And I think, I think a lot of people have those feelings of being on the outside, whether or not their disability is visual or if they're, we're just people, you know, we're complicated people. Um, so I, I don't know. It's, it's, a. Uh, 
<laughs> Someone said to me, actually, one of my friends this morning said to me, she's like, oh, no one cares about legs. It's all about the torso. <laughs> <laughs> Your torso's fine. I'm like, oh, my God. But, you know, it's just, it's all perspective. Um, and, you know, I, I'm proud of that first book, but I do feel sometimes like it's old news because some of the issues that I cover in there, not that they're not around because they're portable and tenacious, but they're not as ever present. I mean, it's a very first book. It's a coming of age book. I wrote it when I was like 27. So, you know, I didn't know anything. Right. Um, well, and you know, now, but, I don't know anything now, but I mean, at least I sort of can fake it better, I think. <laughs> well, and it's also, I mean, I, th- I feel like there's some um, communication between the two books because, you know, like you talked about, like you have this, um, you know, prosth- prosthetic leg and, Everyone, and you're kind of compensating for that by being like this happy achiever, you know? And right, right, you, right. You went to Harvard. Um, you know, you're an achiever. You got stuff done. You kind of ticked the boxes. And then um, with the new book and with the experience with Ronan, it sort of pulls the rug out from under all that. And you know, Right. So I think they, they kind of bookend each other a little bit, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I think they do. They sort of um, they have there's an interesting kind of conversation unintentional that's happening there. So um, yeah, and then and then like just uh, Harvard Divinity School, which is a fascination of mine. Like, what was that like? A bunch of boozers. What that was like? <laughs> it was um, it was it was interesting. It was I had a really good time there, um, and I I learned a lot, and I realized I didn't want to learn anymore about religion at the moment. And I wanted, I learned that I like took a writing class with Brad Watson at Harvard and I just was like, okay, this is what I actually want to do. So it was, um, two years really well spent, I think in terms of, of developing or, you know, cultivating a, a, a more vertical, like life of the mind, I would say, um, which served me well in writing of this book. Um, but yeah, it was, you know, divinity school is like a bunch of people who, you know, are searchers. They are searching for something, and some of them are vocationally directed, like they're going to be priests or ministers or whatever. And others of us were sort of in there for the sort of the circling philosophy stuff. Super useful for you know practical job getting, but right. it it did like um, you know it was it was fun. I mean, it was, it, it was really interesting to to study with people who like you know discovered gospels, you know, and read like Acadian, you know, or like Coptic. It's like, who reads Coptic? Like three people, like they're at Harvard, you know? I mean, so I think it's probably more than three people, but you know, people that are really deeply immersed in this ancient stuff that, you know, you can say, oh my gosh, it doesn't matter, but the Bible matters. I mean, it's used in politics, it's used everywhere. And so these are people who deeply understand, like, this oldest, the best-selling book of all time and the oldest friggin' document that we constantly refer to. Um, so that, that was great. I mean, I'd, I, had a, I had a great time. In I love Boston. I love living in Boston. I didn't live in Cambridge, but I, I, I just had made a lot of great writer friends there, a lot of interesting people who went on to do really fascinating things. Um, socially active, engaged. It was it was great. And, yeah. and you're the daughter of a minister. Yeah, my dad's a Lutheran minister, not the crazy one, but like you know the sort of liberal-ish um, Lutheran church. So, yeah, he's so, retired. Yeah. Okay, okay, but you didn't ha- you didn't go to divinity school like within the back of your mind like maybe I'll follow in his footsteps. Oh God, no, no, mm-hmm. okay. no, no. I didn't. I I um, uh, no. I was a religion major. Um, and that happened by accident. And then, um, 
I think I wasn't happen by accident, but I didn't expect to be a religion major is my point. But, and then I just kind of, I wanted to do a PhD and teach, you know, so that's what I went in to do. And then I left after the, the master's. So what is, I mean, I, I'm, I'm assuming you probably live more one day at a time than you ever have before, but do you have a sense of what's next or like what you'd like to do? Um, you know, do you have hopes of, uh, having children again, anything like that, books? like Yeah, I would. I would like to have children again. I mean, I'm not exactly 20 anymore, but I would. I mean, I don't know how that's going to happen, but it's something that um, I would like to do. I also think that if I didn't do it, that having had Ronan would have, will have been an incredibly profound parenting experience that I wouldn't have chosen, but that I wouldn't trade. Um, so, oh, crap, there's someone in my house. Um can you hold on for just a second? Sure. Or not? Is that going to be annoying? No, I can I can cut it together. Okay, just I need there's another guy coming at one for an interview and he's like at my door. Okay, he's yeah. going to be freaked out. Look at you, fancy. I know. <laughs> okay. okay. Sorry. Okay, so we were just talking about um, the possibility of having kids again and yeah, what's next? Um, so that's on my mind. Um, and then I am working on a novel. Uh, that I started a long time ago and hoping to, you know, finish that. Um, is, is, just, it, is it, is it nice to be working on fiction <laughs> in, in a completely imaginative space? Yeah, it is. I mean, it's, it's great. And it's, it's a novel that I feel like I finally, uh, during this experience of writing still point, I actually cracked the code on that book a little bit. So it was kind of, it's kind of waiting for me and I have been writing, I have been writing poetry for better or for worse, just because it's something you can do in a day. You know, you can write a poem in a day and it feels kind of productive. And then I'm still writing essays um, on a pretty regular basis, but I am, I am kind of looking forward to getting back into the fiction and dropping down into a different kind of space. Cool. Well, I, uh, I can't tell you how nice it's been to talk with you. And yeah, thanks. It was, was really great. fun. And it was great to meet you the other day. And I just, yeah, that was great. I, uh, I wish you well. I wish you happiness. Thank you. And thanks. I, and I congratulate thanks, you on this book. Thank you so much. All right, everybody. There you have it. That is Emily Rapp. Go get her book. It is wonderful, and it is called The Still Point of the Turning World. It's available now from Penguin. You can find Emily online at emilyrapp.com. I believe she's also on the Facebook. And once again, please do take a moment to visit ntsad.org to make a donation uh, to help in the fight against Tay-Sachs disease. It's a great way to give and a great way to honor uh, the memory of Ronan, whose life, uh, while short, has touched uh, a great many people, including me. Uh, Okay, so thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Be sure to go get the app, the free official Other People app, available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's free, so please go get that. And uh, what else is there to say? I don't know what else to say. It's one of those episodes. uh, There's not much to add. Please remember that there is a bust of William Blake in Westminster Abbey and that Mark Twain once called the Book of Mormon, quote, chloroform in print, end quote. That is all for now. I'll be back again on Sunday with another episode, another conversation with another writer. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Emily Rapp. Uh, Please go donate at ntsad.org. And when you do so, please do it in Ronan's honor. Thanks, you guys. (laughs) 